0: Hey, this is Katie and you're tuned in to a podcast about skills, the resilience they bring and living closer to the ground so we don't have quite so far to fall if our fragile modern systems fail us. Thank you to Jira Country for holding these conversations and the Jaja Wurrung people for holding country. The chair that's holding me is total rubbish. I picked it up on the side of the road, sanded it back, and painted it hot pink and yellow. It creaks and groans under my weight, reminding me that the ground is a much better place for a human butt. But what this chair does hold perfectly is my fox pelt, which is permanently draped over the back. The fox is a vixen who was found dead in the orchard at Meliodora, possibly hit by a car. Her fur is a striking shade of auburn, flecked with silver. It's soft as a puppy and smells pleasantly of leaves and smoke. Well, it does now. My talented friend Jeremy helped me prepare this pelt, taking it from a fleshy and stinky and flaccid thing in a freezer bag to a soft and sacred object. We used hand tools that Jeremy made himself, because he's also a blacksmith, and spent a whole day scraping flesh and stretching sinewy fibres and rubbing oil and egg yolk into the fox's skin before warming it in the sun and later smoking it over semi-rotten wood. If we hadn't done all of this, all of these steps, and simply left the fox's pelt to dry naturally, it would be stiff as a board and fair game for bugs and maggots. And that's the magic of tanning. This traditional human craft is how animal skins and the warmth and strength and utility they provide is lovingly preserved. I used to cringe at furs and skins, you know, fluffy rabbit jackets, fuzzy possum hats and fox furs slung fashionably over shoulders. I saw them as a gruesome display of human dominance, making trophies and accessories out of the dead. But... Having gingerly explored this ancestral craft, partially by accident, as a practical way to deal with the fox in the freezer, and partially out of a desire to face the visceral realities of existence, I now count tanning as one of the noblest of skills. Not a desecration of, but a celebration of life. And the fox pelt hanging on the back of my hot pink chair sure makes a great conversation starter. So... Have you considered the backstory of your leather shoes? Are you curious about the process that transforms raw hides into luxurious handbags? Do you wonder how tanning relates to personal and collective resilience? Ever thought about nature connection through the lens of attachment theory? If so, my guest today is sure to massage your mind. It's Josh McLean, a social worker and bush adventure therapy facilitator Who also happens to be an expert in the lost art of hide tanning? You might know him as the guy from the bush tannery, but he's increasingly bringing his wicked set of ancestral skills to bear on modern mental health practice. I first met Josh at a rabbit tanning workshop that he was leading in the middle of the city, and I was really honoured that he made the time to reconnect and join me on the podcast to share his fascinating perspective on life, death, the past, the future. Change making, bridge building, and the pale blue dot we call home. So please enjoy this ye old skills edition of Resilience with Josh McLean. I'm I'm bad at doing that artificial. Hey, Josh, welcome to the Resilience podcast. <laughs> but yeah, maybe I'll yeah. Hey, welcome. <laughs> it's so lovely to see you in the screen. And um, where are you?
1: Yeah, so hi everyone. I'm Josh and I'm calling in from Wadawurrung country. So uh, Jalang in the Wadawurrung language, it means tongue of the land or you would hear it as Jalong and that's where I'm calling in from today. Thanks for having me on. I'm super excited to be here and talk about tanning, where it's taken me and everything in between. Learn a little bit about what is resilience, you know, and uh, how does that have a place in in today as we deal with some, you know, pretty big things that, that are happening on the planet and you know, as the future unfolds, where do these lost trades sort of take us? So yeah, when I got the invitation, Katie, I was like, yep, yeah, excellent, let's do it.
0: Amazing, yeah, and I'm so happy uh, you took me up on that offer. And I think that as you, were, yeah, as you were speaking, I was just tuning back into a conversation I was having while cutting up some pears to dry at a table just earlier this morning. We've got a glut of fruit at the moment, which is not a problem at all. Um, and we were talking about this this interview and that I was really excited to be chatting with you today. And my friend said, how are you going to relate tanning to, to everyday people and What are the implications? Because this is, as you say, this lost craft, an endangered skill that's not really um, in our face at the moment as something that we need from a point of necessity. But are you able to explain, you know, where tanning fits in the ecosystem of a modern human person who may not even make the connection that a handbag or shoes has come from an animal?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, after doing... Tanning for, I think it's coming on a decade now and certainly a practice I never imagined I would participate in, you know, formally, you know, previously vegan and very much, you know, about animal rights and that, you know, consuming animals is an archaic thing that we don't need to do anymore. And um, I would go as far as to say uh, that tanning as a practice is more relevant today than it's ever been. And uh, the the reason why I say that in terms of Western society and its uh, mentality around um, like if you look at the core myth that we're kind of living is that is this infinite world, infinite growth, infinite consumption is like this Peter Pan generation that thinks it can live in never never land without consequence and that's coming to terms with our own mortality and if you take an indigenous approach to this uh coming into contact with your own mortality and how to celebrate death and dying and aging and understanding that life is eating life in all of its forms and uh, the Ouroboros is probably a really great mythic symbol of that, the snake eating its own tail, which appears in so many different cultures as a motif. And uh, yeah, that's where I would say that a practice like tanning, not sun tanning, as some people might ask me, you're a tanner, uh, is participating in that cycle of death and renewal. So we talk about, uh, you know, it's a cradle-to-cradle process, you know, is the death but then the rebirth of something, you know, we're all born out of the earth and we all return to the earth and I think this practice really celebrates that.
0: Yeah, that's extremely poetic and and gratifying because I often struggle to articulate why it is I think that looking, facing into the, the bloodier, gorier, messier parts of life and death, um, more specifically why that is connected to our crises that we're facing and also the opportunities that, that we have to really extricate ourselves from those things. So thank you for putting that so beautifully. Um, I want to see if you can kind of flesh out the um, vegan aspect because I know I, I was a vegan and I had such an impenetrable armour I had this, um, this hardened kind of shield that deflected any kind of advice or education or teaching or alternative perspectives that would come in from the outside. I just didn't want to hear it and it was only through like my own health challenges and I think questioning, questioning mortality and those existential things that kind of led me along the path a little bit but I'd love to hear more about your story from veganism too tanning toads and eels and rabbits and, you know, the kind of work you do today?
1: Yeah, no, thank you, uh, Katie. So, yeah, to go from veganism to tanning and, you know, I consume meat as well, yeah, very similar, like this very much impenetrable armour, you know, this is the right way, you know, and uh, pro-life and, you know, really uh, I think it, it's born from a really uh loving place but i think it's it's one step on that journey so um you know certainly there's the consumption of meat and then there's the consumption of meat like you know there's very different ways that one can consume uh food and um having done a master's in public health and i majored in nutrition and food system literacy so how uh we eat you know, shapes society and the planet, you know, it, it really does affect everybody across the planet, how we produce food and consume food. And so a little anecdote about my experience was, um, you know, and some people will know this story if they've tanned with me is I was in, uh, Lapland. Um, and I hadn't really planned to spend more than a couple of weeks, but I ended up living there for six months and spending time in a a Sámi village and relating, uh, you know, with the Sámi people in this village, one particular family. And some of that knowledge uh, was passed on and, you know, around relating to the land and a big part of that was eating meat. And at the time I was very much, uh, no, no meat, very much lentils, rice, um, And fruit and vegetables. And I just through a cultural, you know, like being culturally safe, I just said, Yep, okay. I had some smoked moose heart. And then there were stories about how they relate to the moose and uh, the fish. And it really shifted my way of thinking. It was, okay, Um, so there's one way of consuming the meat that's unhealthy, but. This relational aspect of celebrating the life and that uh, this animal is living its natural life here and I'm uh, participating in that and I think that really shifted my understanding of how we participate in the food system even though I had very much learned a lot of the science behind um, you know animal products and how damaging that was so it, it was quite a conflict internally but After that experience, I looked at how we consume animal products quite differently. I see all life as sacred and how we participate in that story, that is the important part.
0: Mm. Yeah, I feel like Smoked Moose Heart could be the name of this episode. And also that is a very intense entry point for a vegan (laughs) into the carnivorous world. I wonder if this is a really hideous question, but would you want your hide tanned?
1: <laughs> it's funny. I, I often get asked that. <laughs> really? uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or if, um, you know, oh, have you ever tanned a human skin or something like that? <laughs> um, uh, no, I guess if I had tattoos, I would, uh, you know, maybe if the tattoos were really important works of art, like you see that. Uh, in Japanese tattoos or Maori tattoo work, I think sometimes they've they've actually preserved it as a like an art piece to honour that family. Um but no, I don't think uh, I've got my skin has got any any story to tell as leather.
0: <laughs> oh wow, that's a beautiful unexpected um, answer in the sense that you're yeah. looking at it from a value perspective rather than your own squeamishness.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be there to tan it because that that would that would be very painful if I was. So. <laughs> yeah,
0: maybe maybe the more eloquent version of that question is, how comfortable really does the practice of tanning make you with your own mortality? I I question myself in this because I think now mm. I've got this shock of, yeah, I'm participating in the life and death and life cycle, but when my life is imperiled. Am I going to have that same equanimity and kind of poetry about it? You know, like, mm. and can any of us purport to be cool with it? Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts and feelings are around your own mortality.
1: Yeah, I, I think early on, you know, you get a sense of you know working, you know, and you've got the blood and all of the the gore that comes with the tanning process, and it's uh, initially quite squeamish you know and and then um after a while it becomes quite um natural i wouldn't say it's enjoyable by any stretch you know i i don't i wouldn't say i enjoy it it just feels like a natural process but as the years have gone on and as i enter you know into the afternoon of my life i find myself um Looking back more on you know where I've been, what I've done, and in terms of my own mortality, looking at okay, you know I'm in the afternoon of my life now. What am I going to do in this la- like the second half of my life? So, and I think that confrontation of death and dying uh, has really helped with that process and even supporting loved ones who have, who have passed as well. Um, you know, I wouldn't say it makes it easy, but I, I, I certainly feel a different sense of um, acceptance. Like it, it, it feels, it doesn't feel like a shame or, or like a bad thing. It's, it, it feels very natural and a part of life. Uh, I think grief and loss, are still natural responses to that but rather than it sitting in our shadow and you know as people age they don't want to celebrate their birthdays or um you know it's seen as a shame you know whereas i think if you look at other cultures there's a real celebration there you know about um the gifts that they've given and the valuing of people as they age for their wisdom and experience and now if you look at the general Western society, it's like we put the ageing, you know, isolated away. And, you know, um, I think that's a kind of a good juxtaposition to show how we process uh, mortality. But, yeah, that's my experience as well is I do feel more connected to my own mortality, which is making life you Know more bearable to a degree, yeah.
0: Mm, yeah, okay, that's nice to hear. Um, yeah, you you touched on that the grisliness that tanning can entail. And mm. I was thinking before this conversation, you mess around with a you know a brain if you're doing that that style of tanning, you're, you're kind of squishing and squelching up a brain, or you're you know using urine to tan, or you know, there's lots of different um processes for tanning so I do want to acknowledge that like um, it's not just the kind of pelt and the flesh you're dealing with there's like a multi-organ kind of participation in this process knowing a little bit more about tanning then you know I had that realization that I hadn't made the connection between things that I use really frequently and the fact that they were leather or they were tanned or they were skin and also how Efficient that is as a form as a material, and if we're talking about buckskin or things you can leather and tanned items you can wear, what I understand is that that represents quite a quite an efficient and valuable um, source of kind of self-protection and warmth and shelter as opposed to growing hemp or cotton or things that we have to go through these really lengthy processes to then create a fiber from. Is that right?
1: Yeah, no, that's 100% right. Um, Like to give the listener a bit of, if you don't understand how long it takes to tan a skin, um, you know, say uh, buckskin leather, you might be able to make in a week, depending on the size of the animal. Uh, It does take longer to do your bark tanning leather. So that might take anywhere from, two months for a thin skin all the way up to a year for like what you see is a cowhide leather you know used for belts and more structural leather pieces like halters for a horse you know that that leather generally takes up to 12 months to produce um so not all leathers are are created equal in terms of time and and function Yeah. So that, in terms of growing and production though, um, yeah, like you said, you know, particularly if we were to do, you know, traditional, um, you know, hemp production and breaking the fibre down and releasing the fibre, then um, twining like the fibre together so it can be used to create something, um, you know, you start, yeah, the production time, you know, really does come into effect. And then in terms of longevity of its um, strength as well, like some leather items, um, you know, become heirlooms if they're looked after properly, like, and they're oiled and um, they're handed down. I mean, a, a, a pair of boots, for example, you're only going to get so many um, uh, years out of them. And if you look after the leather, often it's the stitching that will come out, uh, you know, or the soles, You know, if you have rubber soles, obviously that's a relatively new um, technology. But, um, you know, for leather soles, you might have to replace your leather soles.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw this documentary from I think last year it was released called The Nettle Dress. And it um, was a very beautiful independent documentary about a man who spent seven years harvesting and processing nettle fibre to make a dress for his teenage daughter and it's incredibly beautiful, but seven years (laughs) was such an intense process. Mm.
1: Yeah. And, and depending on the construction and, you know, how the dress is used, you know, it'd be interesting to see how long that um, dress will last. I know from colonial settlers, um, you know, colonizing different parts of the planet, not just here in um, Australia, but I think particularly in North America, um, where buckskins typically associated with the F- First Nations people in North America. Um, you know, when in their woolen sweaters or whatever they'd get through the forest and they're just torn to shreds. you know, but in the buckskin, because it's so supple and it's so strong um, and so quiet and you blend in, um, you know, it's such a superior like fabric and it can last uh, you know, for years and years, like I have a two goat skin, um, buckskin shirt and, you know, it's still going like I, um, you know, I don't hang it up with my other clothes or whatever, you know, it's stuffed into a bag and I pull it out and it's like the same day that I smoked it, like it's still super supple and, um, I don't know how long it'll, um, last for maybe my whole life if I'm only wearing it infrequently, but certainly, um, you know, if we talk about resilience and um, in terms of handmade uh, textiles, uh, you know, working with skin and and tanning, it's it's a pretty incredible uh, material.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which actually reminds me, you look really normal. You're just like dressed really normally. What's the deal? Like, why aren't you in head to toe deer <laughs> skin finery?
1: Yeah, no, I that's a really good point. And something I honestly, if I could dress how I want, I I would be uh wearing that, but um as we talked sort of off the podcast about you know sort of where tanning has taken me, like I've um a lot of the skills and experiences that I feel you know as I was doing the tanning and you know, as the crafter, like this, this sort of barrier between you and the process starts to, um, dissolve. And it's like, who, who's crafting who here, you know, and this process of embodiment and feeling the alchemical changes with the skin, I could feel internally. And, um, as a result of that, a long story short, but it yeah, a lot of those practices I've actually taken and I work as a social worker in mental health and um, I work in the community. And so while you might not see me as frequently at at some of these rewilding uh, sorts of gatherings and skill gatherings, I'm bringing these skills to, you know, children um, that might be disadvantaged or vulnerable, you know, people with disabilities, people that might not necessarily be exposed to this stuff. And while it might not look like, um, yeah, I've got my leather bags on and all my leathers and, and that uh, this inspiring awe and wonder and contact with these skills is still very much a part of how I interact with people. So um, yeah, it's sort of integrating that into the the mainstream and that's probably why, yeah, as you're looking at me right now, it's like, Oh, you look, like you're a normal guy and then you start chatting to me and you're like, no, oh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would never accuse anyone of being normal. I don't normal. think yeah, any yeah. of us want to hear that. <laughs> That's right. That's
1: right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> We're all odd on the inside.
1: That's true. But
0: um I'm very, very, very excited by – Uh, the idea that arose um, as you were making that beautiful segue into outdoor health, which is the venture and that integrated space that you're now inhabiting. Um, But my excitement levels rose when I thought about this this constant, this perennial question that I know myself and a lot of people in more of an activist or environmental or, you know, impassioned state about something that they want to bring to the world and we find ourselves just talking to people who are already all over it you know and like we're kind of affirming each other and we're deepening our practice but are we really reaching out are we really building bridges Mm. really connecting across like different demographics or different neighborhoods or yeah abilities are we actually casting the kind of ripples that we want and I would love to talk to you about what your your thoughts on activism are and um, what it is like to actually as you say mainstream some of this really you know it's it's old and traditional but it's quite edgy fringy stuff.
1: There's a couple of things there no I think on the first point about accessibility and not being caught in an echo chamber which can happen um, in any sort of um, you know group like you know that has a similar interest and you know it's like yes I want to Um, give this tanning a go and you know there's a real it's a particular flavor and um, I think making it accessible uh, to the public so I I run public workshops that anybody can sign up for I do private workshops where it might be a very particular uh, group so I do lots of private work or um, you know I'm doing art pieces now you know to help raise money for Indigenous education so um, I think it's sort of a multi-faceted thing that depends on the person's context and um, yeah I guess being conscious of not getting caught um, yeah in a bubble of you know that echo chamber that I talked about and I think that's something that I became quickly aware of is just hanging out with like-minded people is really great you know that can be a core but then having um, those opportunities to integrate and you know diversity just like nature is diverse you know that interacting with diversity is sort of the spice of life and that I think that's really uh, healthy you know obviously it's you there's got to be boundaries in there around you know how we interact with certain groups and, and that. But I think that uh, diversity with the mainstream, if we do believe in this uh, interconnected entity that is the earth, then all the happenings on the earth are interconnected. So how we relate to them, I think, is uh, so important, you know. Your
0: own evolution and diversification, has that been really conscious, something born of a sense of, you know, um... Ill ease with that that echo chamber, or is it just your natural curiosity and something kind of pulling and tugging at you to go there?
1: Yeah, I no, I for me a real turning point I think was this real conflict externally and externally between you know the world that I could imagine that it could be and that you know we talk about. Um, in the various fields that are about, you know, progressing, you know, nature connection and that, and I could th- share a common thread of, um, you know, kind of, you know, energy descent and, you know, really becoming conscious of how we consume and sustain, like real sustainability, not the greenwashing sort of stuff that we see a lot of, and, um, and then. You know so there's that picture and then running a tanning and leather crafting business that's really trying to embody all of that knowledge and then the sheer weight and crushing uh, pressure of this other reality which is a society that's in utter chaos that's lost in this amnesia of um infinite growth and consumption and uh You know, and I guess that's part of my own maturing process is, um, yeah, how to have one foot in both of those worlds and use my privilege and education and life experience to be part of the solution. And I think that's an ongoing wrestle that, you know, like I've experienced but I see many other people experiencing in these spaces is, um, you know, it's really great to, you know, be fueled by passion and to you know do these projects but at the same time we're trying to weigh up you know I'm trying to also pay uh like a mortgage or you know trying to do other life things that um you know it would be great if there was no fences and we were living harmoniously but there are fences and there is politics and there is legislation and so I guess it's um Yeah, for me, it's just been how to strike that balance of, um, you know, not just being like, oh, not tanning anymore. I've just given that up and I've walked away. You know, which, you know, I would, you know, people would be forgiven if they thought, oh, yeah, he doesn't really tan anymore. It's like, ah, but it's evolved. It's evolved so much that um, the things that I'm doing now are projects that. you know, feel so close to my heart that I feel like a working towards that, like inspiring nature connection with kids is just so transformative because they're going to be the next generation that come through. And I still value running my workshops with those that are, you know, preaching to the converted, but I do feel that it's put me into other areas where I can, um, you know, share these um, skills and practices so that, um, you know, they can also participate too. So it has more impact on a, on a wider scale.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Can you paint a picture of what that looks like? How are you fusing, um, your ancestral crafts and yeah, social work and support work? Please tell us more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess in a, in a nutshell, um, uh, So you mentioned outdoor health and so I've gone and done a second master's degree. So I've done eight years of university education and then, you know, 10 of those years, five uh, less recently, five was very much dedicated to tanning, living on the land, participating in the rewilding community, uh, really trying to embody as much of that as possible permaculture, Um, cradle-to-cradle design, um, free economics, like food rescue, like everything you could probably throw at it and I, you know, to really experience it and then um, taking on a public health role, working in a more clinical environment with schools and around how um, I actually worked in drug and alcohol prevention, but then... Uh, heard about this uh, Bush Adventure Therapy, which I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Bush Adventure Therapy, it's like, I wonder if that's got anything to do with this like rewilding stuff and then health because they're two areas I've spent, you know, so much of my life in. And um, before I know it, I was uh, heading up to... uh, just south of Sydney to the International Adventure Therapy Conference with people from all over the world as part of a global community that are passionate about uh, nature and sustainability, but um, how we bring that into uh, therapy or, you know, working with people for better health and well-being. And... So a few lights just went off for me because I I realized, I was like, wow, you know, this this work could have impact in this health and well-being space. And so that's when, um, yeah, I went and did the Social Work Masters. And then basically since 2019, I've just been full-time just at this Bush Adventure Therapy looking at how... um, to weave in these skills so people go, Okay, how does that look in a practical sense, Josh? You know? So um as I mentioned to you, I have about fifty percent of my week is one to one or in groups with people and we'll be going uh there's sort of two options. You've got a journey based experience where maybe you go canoeing for a week down the Glenelg River or maybe down the Murray and you're sort of camping, you're having a fire and you're having these intentional conversations, you know, where you're relating to other people that you might not necessarily relate to. And it's these stories that we carry in our bodies that connect, you know, with other people. And while tanning is a very technical skill, It's actually the non-technical aspects of the skill through the practice that have become embodied and imprinted in me that now, you know, it's taking, it will probably keep unraveling for me, my life, but uh, at our core, we are storytelling creatures. And so how does that look? I guess in its most fundamental form is uh, storytelling and, you know, your, um, You know, so I might not necessarily be facilitating a tanning workshop on the side of the river, but it's something that I might talk about or um, those practices are coming through the way that I'm telling stories. And I think the way we tell stories shapes our human experience. And I think the best saying to that is when we change the way we view things, the things we view change.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm transported to the nature-based leadership training days, and that's where we met through the tanning workshop that was part of that. And being around a campfire in the bush, and how quickly the trappings of modern civilization and the habits and uh, you know devices and inputs we think we need, how quickly that falls away, and something wakes up mm. <laughs> around that fire. And yeah, it's it's a really deep contented, alive, thrilling feeling to to be in circle with other people and with your bare feet on the ground. And I think Martin Shaw says that culture is three days deep. Like it doesn't yeah. take more than three days if you stick people out on the land to kind of revert to some older phenotype or something. Um, yeah. Is that what you see happening when you take people out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And And so some of the technical skills we will actually do. And, um, but in terms of that three days deep, I love that from Martin Shaw, you know, and um, yeah, often the programs we try to run are longer than three days because it takes that time for that stripping back of, you know, the busy mind and, and really sinking in to, I guess, ourselves, you know, our true selves, you know, this ego persona driven hyper individuality that's just constantly consuming you know it takes time for that to kind of dissolve i mean three days is a a bit of a ballpark figure depending but yeah usually after day three you kind of see this sinking this sort of deep breath of ah okay i'm more here now and I might notice a bird or, you know, something in the environment that I didn't notice before. And, um, and so that's, yeah, again, linking back to tanning as a skill. That's why I'm at the start of our, our conversation. I said, I think it, well, I know it's more relevant today than ever before because we're so cognitive, rational, external focused um these practices because they're so old you know in terms of like epigenetics I they have this kind of way of um getting down to the marrow of our beings you know to the soul to the center and waking us up you know and oh I get goosebumps just uh talking to you about it because um you know there's yeah just such an emphasis in our culture about how things look and the external um, and that is important the external is you know very important but I I would say that this internal processing and through an embodied practice like tanning I mean it could be whittling it could be your nashi pears drying jamming um, you know it's an embodied practice and I think that's um, through my journey with it, I feel so lucky to combine it with mental health practice. And there's all these other practices too I'm not going to go into that integrate so well with this idea of sensory motor, bottom-up neurobiology. The science is there. And, yeah, it's just uh, such an exciting time to see these old skills and how the stories can be told in new and exciting ways that engage us so that we can, um, you know, grow and and heal the the separation that so many people are experiencing.
0: Yeah, even as we move through the conversation from that mind's eye campfire and back to my present moment inside, kind of surrounded by technology, I feel a small sense of the, of the grief that I feel when I come back from a retreat like that or I come back from camping and I wonder are there perils to kind of waking up in that way and feeling um, feeling that yearning satisfied by being in a more evolution evolutionarily appropriate setting and then having to come back to like the harsh fluorescent light of reality. How do people make that transition and is that something to be managed really gently coming back and forth between those worlds
1: yeah well this concept of um self-compassion or radical self-acceptance and that you know even like when i use the term violence you know in a very general sense you know how we treat ourselves you know how we talk to ourselves and tend to ourselves um know to tend gently you know to ourselves as if we would care for another you know do we care for ourselves and um you know we're in a time of such great upheaval you know if you so many graphs have this like exponential curve of just stuff hitting the fan you know and um <laughs> <laughs> to put that it very gently, <laughs> <laughs> excrement <laughs> put, excrement hitting the fan in so many uh directions and um yeah that you know like we we sort of have two choices you know it's either through love or fear and um I think for me a lot of it early on coming in was a lot of fear based you know fear that all the animals are going to become extinct and, you know, fear that, um, uh, you know, things are going to go completely wrong and the earth's going to die. And, you know, and just forgetting about that love and compassion, uh, that's needed. And, um, you know, that it's going, you know, violence is not going to reduce violence like that's, you know, so it's, um, you know, we're seeing that on a global scale. So um, one of the best images that, um, if I can transport the listener, you know, imagine being out in space and just looking back at the Earth, this pale blue dot, as Carl, I think Carl Sagan described it as the pale blue dot. And, you know, there's no nations. It's just this one giant kind of biological spaceship, basically, you know, floating through space together you know and looking down we see you know all these going and happenings you know all happening across the planet and there's no separation there there's that integrated kind of whole and I think that image is really powerful you know I've literally got a print on my wall to remind me you know to be compassionate to myself but to my neighbor too because we're all here trying to find our way and um yeah so i think how i did how i've been dealing with it is very much that self-compassion i do need constant reminding um because of the busyness and demands of of life or we see like i see something that's that causes an internal conflict and it's yeah coming back to not being submissive surrendering you know letting go Um, otherwise that resistance and uh, pushing is only going to cause more conflict so yeah
0: Mm, yeah that was a nice intergalactic trip (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't want to skim over your expertise in terms of the the base the growing base of evidence around how fundamental connection and contact with nature taking for granted that we are actually nature ourselves but how mm. fundamental that is to human well-being you said some really cool terms earlier like neurobiological something or other are you able to elaborate a little on our need for that connection with with land with country however you want to frame it
1: yeah well i think probably the best theory on that is probably attachment theory so right. um and I'm going to expand the theory a little bit, but at least that as a base theory can help us to understand the importance of relating. And um, so early on, you know, when you're when you're born, your primary attachments are your parents. But also, uh, if you expand that bubble, you know, y- your attachments are also going to be to the place that you belong. And um, and that's why I love the word belonging because it's to be long somewhere you know to be somewhere for some time because it takes time to uh, really sink into a space you know to recognize and for knowledge passing and so if that primary attachment and the relationships that we have and we need that reciprocity between the attachments and there's sort of three main styles of attachment there's the ideal which is secure so that could be seen as belonging and then you have insecure types of attachments which are broken up into uh, like an anxious attachment so you're trying to get the attachment but it's just it's it's not coming to you or there's avoidant attachment which is uh, I know I need the attachment, but I don't, like, it's a pushing away, you know. And there is there is a third type, which is uh, disorganised or anxious avoidant. And, um, but we won't go into that. That's like a, a very small percentage. But um, if we talk about that in terms of, um, you know, relating to the planet, I guess um, the theory of attachment kind of helps us you know in terms of being secure is safety and if you look at general society like uh i guess we're talking and you know i I speak for my own ancestry colonial settlers you know we've come over i've traced my history you know scottish uh to the isle of mull 11th century we've probably come over here to find farming land dispossession and genocide so much trauma, you know. Does the word secure and safe resonate with that? Not at all. That's like horrendous. And in terms of developing safe, safety and relational, you know, um, that intergenerational uh, trauma, to use trauma language, um, and then with the neurobiological framework, so we talk about trauma informed, is that their patterns but they're they're adaptive patterns that may have worked at the time but have imprinted on us that now in today's society uh, have become maladaptive so they don't serve us any longer. And um, But to process that, you know, it takes time and it takes awareness and um, so it, it hangs in the shadows and most people deal with it through consuming because it helps us to distract ourselves from the discomfort of you know this story that's been quite horrendous you know and actually is contributing to how we relate to our parents or if you see the earth as the mother you know are we securely attached to our mother and I think we're asking that question in different ways maybe not in the way that I framed it here using attachment theory, which I've never done. So this is, (laughs) um, you know, but you asked a question, what kind of theory could we look at here to explain this? And, um, you know, attachment theory is great to explain, you know, human to human or an anthropocentric approach, or if you want to go more than human is also our security and safety attachment to the natural world. And I'd say that most people uh, probably haven't even thought about thought about that. So, That's yeah.
0: so bloody cool. And I feel like that is extremely apt because my feed, my Instagram feed, is filled with attachment slides <laughs> talking about, you know, relationships, but to actually extrapolate and to extend that into my my place and the place I belong and the place I'm trying to really relate to as a as a, yeah, secure, um, a reciprocally beneficial kind of thing, then that absolutely makes sense. And then two, I suppose what springs to mind is in like, um, and I'm not super well versed in this stuff, but like a, an insecure attachment or avoidant attachment, there's a lot of maybe exaggerated fears or things that we're, we're responding and reacting to that then don't help the the health or quality of that relationship. And, yeah, I, I feel that this really works as an analogy or as a <laughs> as a theory. Hmm.
1: Yeah, no, that's I'm so glad that it's landing, and I hope that the listener it's landing for as well. And a book I would recommend, and maybe you can add it in there, is attached. Is a really good book to start with, and and yeah, exactly that that, um, like say relationship to snakes, you know, like people, like a petrified, you know, shovel you know, kill, obviously, if it's threatening and endangering people. But, yeah, you can really see how people kind of relate. And I think attachment theory, um, yeah, is a really good analogy.
0: Wow, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really brilliant. And I hope that that might serve you in the future or something that you could explore or express because it's really helpful. Yeah. Um And, yeah, in terms of like our, our physical well-being, our mental well-being, What is there to understand about how nature connection um, can really assist us and support us? Because I I have this theory of everything where it's like, we're really not looking at the fundamental things that we're, we're deficient in. We're somehow problem solving at this higher level with like, you know, pharmaceuticals or really complicated interventions. And it's like, hey, we just need to go outside. You know, are there these really simple points of connection and nourishment that we're just not getting um, that you see as being fulfilled when you're you're working in that space?
1: Oh, uh, look, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, there is a, a long kind of list with that. I mean, probably immediately that comes to mind is what we call screen-based living. So um, studies have been done like in the West, I, I think, I don't want to quote anything in case i get it wrong but basically what the research is showing the amount of hours that people are spending on screens um like that is so drastic compared to you know i mean we've only had screens for a very short developmental time for the human evolution and we don't know the long-term impacts on that you know we are seeing higher rates of uh, things like autism, ADHD, um, you know, these sort of uh, diagnoses that are related to focus and inattention um, and capacity to deal with conflict, uh, social and emotional skills. Um, you know, so much of my work is in that social-emotional realm. Like, how do we communicate and um so yeah I I see um yeah I see so much um of that and and so in the mental health space uh yeah nature is right there it's right here it's everywhere and uh can be accessed wherever you are is nature you know obviously we've got like the human made kind of imposing structures um but in terms of green and blue spaces um there's this other theory called attention restoration theory so just um you know if the listener is going oh i've been feeling really tired you know are you breaking up the periods of sitting with getting up going into a green space and just spending 15 minutes just noticing what's around you and that attention restoration, um, because otherwise, uh, you know, the human body is like, a, tra- it's like a, a transmitter and a receiver, and we're constantly in the transmitting realm. So we're just bombarded with so much information that we can't process. And um, so there's a time, like in Taoism, there's a time for doing, but it's also knowing a time for not doing. And nature is perfect for the not doing and, and being So yeah, we, Mm. we're, we're human doings when we really need to learn how to be human beings. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love that Uh, reminder in our language of how we are productivity focused and um, yeah. And yeah, can switch that around. How does that look for you, Josh, you know, as the holder of all of this knowledge and wisdom and lived experience, how are you, integrating these these things into your everyday life because there is such an addict there's an addictive element mm. to what we're talking about especially with screens and certain mm. platforms as well it's insidious it's predatory how do you actually interrupt that kind of predation and yeah what are your practices around this like beingness
1: yeah like I I have a lot of practices that I go to um whether whether like yesterday, it was like, you know, um, I walk along the river and, you know, and other times, you know, I've got two beautiful dogs and I'll walk out into the backyard and, you know, play with them. And sometimes this is spontaneous, but yeah, like you said, like I am human doing sometimes, like, you know, I'm trying to juggle all these things. so. Um, yeah it's just a constant reminding being self-compassionate that if I fall off the wagon a bit and I I notice that you know I've just binged three episodes of a particular show I'm really enjoying and not and not um condemning myself about it but you know reflecting on you know am I balancing this how's like just checking in with my body how am I feeling am I feeling tired do I need to take a a stint, like a, a proper break, you know, for five weeks. And, you know, so it's, yeah, I think it's about being realistic with yourself and self-compassionate. And, you know, I have time in the morning to journal. Um, when I wake up, that's another practice I do. Journaling's really good. Um, and I love the outdoors. So on the weekend, I was sailing. So and that's a really slow you're just powered by the wind you know and um and it can be really hard to carve out those time frames but i i think uh as time goes on rather than like oh yeah we should really do that is i now then go okay what day are we gonna do that like let's let's actually put this into action i mean there's lots of spontaneous things you can do but in the busyness of um dealing with mainstream demands i think um one has to you know really carve out those times not as oh that would be nice it's actually i need to do that because that's gonna help me with the other parts of my life so yeah it can be it can be quite a challenge i, I do find that i'm each week i'm having to really have a check in with myself about that.
0: I mean, that's it's comforting to know
1: <laughs> that yeah.
0: um, many of us, most of us, all of us, potentially experience that that challenge and ongoing tension. As we move towards the end of the conversation, I'd really love to bring in your vision to really frame this in the positive because we have spoken about yeah surrendering and and finding that that balance and maybe some compromises. What is what is the world you think is possible if we? We did take up more of this, um, you know, this connection and presence in our life.
1: Yeah, and and I'll attempt to bring the tanning back into uh, the conversation. Hey, as well. that'd be so, great. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, the world that is possible. I mean, you know, it's a collective dream. You know, it's something that we're all participating in. But I guess from my little patch here on whatever own country um you know I guess yeah as I get further along the journey of like tanning and leather crafting and um you know working in mental health now and uh like I've taken up a position with a university as well so I'm marking papers and moving into that more academic kind of world as well which is exciting and terrifying but i guess the world that i'm kind of imagining is you know a world where we're co-designing co-learning and it's about our relationships and how we um support each other you know with with that learning and respecting or well, primarily ourselves but um each other through that process. And I think the biggest thing I've seen is, yeah, that othering that happens with, um, you know, well, I've got this uh, theory, this practice, they're the problem over there, those people that are causing us all the problems. And I think that othering and separation at its core, is where a lot of our problems are coming from, and so to weave in the tanning, um, tanning such an old practice that in my workshops, and this is just from years of observation, like I get from, uh, you know, people that are you know vegan but are wanting to rescue the animal skins. I get um, uh, people that are shooting and uh, very much carnivores I get a full spectrum of um people in my workshops and it's interesting they start chatting and they realize that they have more in common than you think and they're passionate about accessing nature and that um how good is it to be out in the bush and you know and sharing these stories and bringing people together you know from um you know what appears on paper or even in the news is two very conflicting sides and yet at the core you know they're sharing a story together and um yeah so my vision uh which maybe others share as well is just really about um breaking down the barriers that are causing us uh, this experience separation you know, from each other, but also from ourselves. You know, we're in, particularly in the West, you know, we are very confused with, you know, who we are, what we're doing here. And I think I sort of see us, yeah, settling and and becoming clearer about the way forward together.
0: What is the best way for people to, to find you, to engage with your work um, are there are there workshops you're running? Can you point us in the direction of more Josh?
1: Like I'm not really on social media anymore. Um, that was a choice that I have made. Um, uh, so, but I I do run a public workshop. If people are interested in uh, tanning, one that I've kept because we've got a really good. Uh, relationship with uh, series Melbourne in Brunswick and um, anyone can sign up and do that workshop I have one coming up in April and then one later in the year you can just look up series Melbourne tanning workshop I'll be the only tanning workshop there I promise Um, and that's a you don't need any prior knowledge for that so you can come along and you can learn some of the hands-on skills that I've talked about uh, here and if you're interested in private um you know workshops particularly for large groups um, you know i've worked with school groups uh, rewilding groups outdoor groups um, you can email me i'm sure you can pop the email katie on the thing i'll a link bit. all of this yeah yeah so the bush tannery at gmail.com if you pop that there they can email through and um Maybe we can even have a chat if you've got a particular project or or idea, whether that's tanning or if it's for a mental health program. Maybe it's both.
0: It was such a treat to hear from you and your world today, Josh. Uh, Thank you so much for making the time.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the Resilience podcast, Katie. It's so awesome to see you again. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing more episodes pop up and I hope... um, whoever's listening that you found this uh really enjoyable i've really enjoyed chatting to you today
0: you'll find all the good things we referenced in the show notes including josh's blissfully limited online presence and contact details i highly recommend getting to his tanning workshops at series in NAM, melbourne if this conversation has piqued your interest it's another mystery guest next week This podcast is in no way strategic or structured. Rather, I really enjoy seeing how the cookie crumbles and which conversation wants to come up for air. Some people have told me that a podcast each week is actually kind of mad, that they're not getting time to listen before the next episode drops. What do you think? Is it a bit of a frenzied schedule? I don't know. I'm someone who hangs out for my favourite podcast to refresh every single week, a glutton for audio content. So, each Monday it is, for now. But if you have any thoughts on the timing, the format, the guests, the questions, or any other ways this concept of resilience can be most in service of a less bullshit, more real shit life, let me know. You can email me at, katie, at katie.com.au or attempt to send me a message on Instagram, which is perilous to say the least, but I will try and get back to you eventually. I loved hanging out with you this week and see you next.